Amen. Let's turn Genesis chapter three, verses one through 11, and let's read that together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And it goes on, and the man says, the woman gave it to me. We all know this part. Blame it on the woman. Blame it on the devil. Okay, right? We're familiar with that. We're going to stop right there, okay? Um, We've all been over that. If it weren't for the woman, and then blame it on the man, because he should have been there helping her not to make mistakes, okay? We're not going to focus on that this morning. We don't want to bring out blame, okay? But I want to bring out just a couple details, a couple, uh, some context surrounding the scripture, okay? If you look in the one previous verse before we read, It says in Genesis 2.25 that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so I have a funny story about that. Don't fear. It's not that kind of story. But my friend Eric McDonald, who's here in his homiletics class at school, they had to pick out a scripture verse and just do a sermon like that from the top of their head. And guess what scripture he picked? And they were naked and not ashamed. Isn't that hilarious? And then so he had to preach on that to his class. Um, so that, that's the first thing. The second thing, details from the scripture, is that Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from any tree in the garden, right, except for the tree in the middle, which was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when the devil told them, God knows that your eyes are going to be opened when you eat from this tree, in fact, he was telling them the truth. But what they were hoping for in their eyes being opened was not actually what they got when their eyes were opened. And, uh, and the last part, uh, detail that I want to bring out is so, when God told Adam not to eat from the tree, he didn't say, don't touch the tree, right? But Eve said, God said, don't eat from the tree or touch it lest you die. That's, that's the danger of, of not hearing from God for ourselves from the word, right? When you get stuff secondhand, it gets twisted, right? And then, and then it becomes what it was not meant to be. So Eve said, God said, don't, don't eat from it or touch it lest you die, which isn't actually what God said. God actually said, don't eat from it, but also touching it would have been, uh, that would have been a good idea not to touch it. Okay. So from the very first sin until the sin that we struggle with today, sin follows a pattern in scripture. And I want to talk about the patterns of sin this morning, because the Bible says, do not be unaware 
of the devil's schemes, right? Don't be unaware. If we see a pattern in scripture, I want to know about it so that I can apply, so that I can beware of a pattern of sin and so that I can apply the remedy to my own life, right? So it behooves us to pay attention to the Bible, right? The word of God says that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, right? New Testament, Old Testament, all of it is useful for our teaching. So we want to pay attention to patterns that we see in the scripture so that we can apply um, the salve or the remedy to our own lives, okay? So we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. And it's so amazing how from the first sin until almost the end of the book uh, in 1 John, which is close to Revelation, we see we see a pattern that emerges. First John two fifteen through 16 says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, the word of God tells us that there are three common temptations of man, okay? And from the moment when Eve sinned, the first sin, until the moment when we sin today, these three things are always going to be part of it. And I learned this in junior Bible quiz. The three common temptations of man, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, right? That's what it says in 1 John, okay? For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. So when we look at this scripture again, we see the lust of the flesh that Eve saw the tree was good for food. We see the lust of the eyes. It says it was a delight to the eyes. And we see the boastful pride of life that she saw that it was desirable for making one wise, right? These are the common temptations of man. These are the things that we all struggle with. Eve was the first one. And I'm here today to say I struggle with the same thing. Okay. Right. Ever since Eve struggled in the garden, we're all struggling. And it says, it tells us in first John how we struggle. Now, is it a sin to be tempted? What do you think? No, it's not a sin to be tempted. We can't control when we're tempted or when we're not tempted, although we can control, you know, surrounding ourselves with random temptations that we probably shouldn't, but it's not a sin to be tempted. It wasn't a sin for the devil to come to Eve and for him to, you know, say, you should eat of this tree. But the moment that Eve took that fruit and ate from it because God had said not to do it, she fell into sin and we are born into sin to this day. Now the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So immediately, what did they do? Right? They realized, oh crap, we're naked. So they took some fig leaves and they, they sewed them together to try to cover themselves. And you can see in scripture that, you know, when you look at your children's Bible, they strategically placed bushes and different things around them. Eve had really long hair to help with the situation. Okay. They sewed some fig leaves But before this, they were perfect, right? They were innocent, without guile. And after they sinned, they were filled with shame. They felt dirty. They realized that the way that they thought that they were is not what they really were, okay? They had a revelation of their own depravity. And this is sin's pattern that I want to focus on today because the Bible says that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? And if any man says he is without sin, he's a liar, okay? And we all know that that's true, okay? So... After sin comes shame. This is the pattern. Sin, then shame, okay? Now, I had a different, a different uh, philosophy of shame, but as I began to study the scripture, 
Um, and you can study this for yourself if it sounds wrong to you and you can come talk to me and let me know. I always thought of shame as a horrible thing. That's always from the devil. But what I'm realizing as I'm studying scripture is that shame is neither good nor bad. The definition of shame, according to the Greek is the feeling that leads us to shun what is unworthy out of perspective anticipation of dishonor. Okay. Shame is what leads us to shun what is unworthy because we know that it will bring us dishonor. Okay. In the, in the Hebrew, in the old Testament, shame is the same as to blush or to become pale. And you can see this throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah. When the prophets are speaking to the people, they're saying, look at you. You don't even know how to blush anymore. What they're saying is you don't have any shame for your sin and you should have shame for your sin, right? That's what the prophets were telling the people. So in the Hebrew, in the old Testament, shame, this word shame means to blush or to become fail pale. It's like feeling the humiliation and, and the public disgrace. So shame is like money. It's neither good nor bad, but it's what we do with it that defines our lives. Okay. When we sin, we feel shame. We, we feel that guilt. We, we blush in shame. We feel humiliated. And that shame is a tool that God uses to lead us to him. Do you feel shame this morning over your sin? Hallelujah. Because that shame, God uses it to thrust us to him, to bring us closer to him, to cause us to repent, okay? Now, if you are in Christ and you have repented of your sin and you feel shame, then that's another story, okay? But shame is what God uses for us to turn away and to shun the things that are unworthy. That's what God does, okay? Now, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 12 verse 2, which I love this scripture so much. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And what did he do? He scorned its shame, right? The cross was shameful. He who dies on a cross is cursed, right? The cross is shameful, but Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. He said, no, I'm not going to shun what will seem unworthy to me because you're worth it, right? So he died on the cross and he took our shame and put it on the cross. He scorned and despised the shame. Thank you, Sandra. She's my amen corner. Tamara, you're next. And he put it on the cross, right? That's what he did. And he did it for us. Now, when we come to Christ, he takes our shame. He nailed it to the cross. He takes it, right? And we are shameful no more. That's what he does. That's who Jesus is. But our shame can only be reprieved through repentance. That is the only way to alleviate shame. Not, it, it doesn't, and I know it's like, you want to say to cover shame, but it doesn't cover it. His blood doesn't cover the shame. It like washes it away till it is no more. That's what he does. And some people live so heavily under shame, they don't even know what it feels like to be free of that. And that's what it is that God wants for us. He wants us to be free from shame, right? He despised shame. He scorned it so that we could be free. He took all of it on the cross. But many people like Adam and Eve did, they look ridiculous, covering themselves with excuses, making justifications, blaming others, right? Placing the fig leaves where they may and hoping that nobody notices that we are shame-filled and naked. But just like we can see when we look in our children's Bibles, they were naked, okay? Even though they tried not to make it look like it, okay? 
strategically placing bushes in front of ourselves doesn't cover our shame, right? Matthew Henry says, Adam and Eve were more solicitous to save their credit before men than to obtain their pardon from God. They are backward to confess their sin and very desirous to conceal it as much as may be. The excuses that men make to cover and extenuate their sins are vain and frivolous. Like the aprons of fig leaves, they make the matter never the better, but the worse. The shame thus hidden becomes the more shameful. It's like covering bad body odor with Axe spray. (laughs) All you smell is bad body odor covered by Axe spray, right? Back in the day, man, when me and Becca first moved in over on Chester Street, hallelujah, we got a refrigerator that had had uh, chicken in it for, and been unplugged for, I don't know, days and days. So we took this wonderful smelling Febreze stuff, right? We cleaned out the fridge and we sprayed it, sprayed it, sprayed it, sprayed it, sprayed it, sprayed it. I still cannot smell that smell without like having the gag reflex in my mouth. Cause all I smell when I smell that Febreze smell is the rotten chicken that was in that refrigerator. You know what I mean? It's like, and that's what we do when we try to cover, Carlos is like, I know y'all nasty. <laughs> that's what we do when we try to cover our shame. It doesn't get the smell out. It doesn't free us of smell, right? All it does is cover it up and people can still see. We think that people cannot see, but they can. And I mean, and obviously God sees, and that's even what is more important than that. Shame should lead us to godly sorrow. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly sorrow leads us to repentance and leaves no regret, right? Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. Many people in churches today, come on, and this is what people hate about religion, is that we're filled with shame, but we just hide it and try to cover it up. That's all we do. We're just like, well, you can't see me. (laughs) Can't see me. Okay. Sorry. It's his, his jeans, man. It's so funny. All right. All right. It's only more shameful to try to cover our shame, right? And everybody can see it. So when we confess, before we are forced to confess, we shame the enemy. And that's why the Bible says, confess your sins one to another so that you can be healed, right? Have you ever seen a politician who comes out and confesses their wrongdoing before the media comes out with it? It's like, oh, that's not so bad then. But man, once you're found out, right? And everybody knows about it. And then you go and you say you're sorry. It's like, well, they're not sorry. They're just sorry that they got caught. And that's why the Bible says, confess, confess. Because when you confess your sin, you shame the enemy. You put him to shame. And you yourself become free. We take the ammunition away from the enemy and away from the accusers of the brethren when we confess our sins one to another. And he frees us from that shame. Shame can either be nailed to the cross or it can follow you the rest of your life till your destruction. That is how powerful that it is. Sin leads to shame. Shame can be nailed to the cross or it can follow you the rest of your life until you are destroyed. And this is what Matthew Henry says, and he says it so well. I love this guy. What a dishonor and disquietment sin is. It makes mischief wherever it is admitted. It sets men against themselves and disturbs their peace and destroys all their comforts. 
Sooner or later, it will have shame. Either the shame of true repentance, which ends in glory, or that shame and everlasting contempt to which the wicked shall rise at the great day. Shame can either lead us to repentance, which leads to glory, or it can lead us to destruction. And we've seen lately, and I know you guys, you know, we see it in the news, such sad and horrifying instances of men of God and women of God who in trying to cover their shame have only become more shameful. When you look at what happened with that Ashley Madison website and when they were hacked, millions of men's names were released to the public that were trying to have extramarital affairs. And I read online before the names were released, this pollster Christian guy who I like, he's like probably 3,000 pastors and deacons names are going to be on this list of, you know, paying to try to have extramarital affairs. There were pastors who committed suicide, who lost their churches because their names came out. And instead of confessing so that there could be repentance and restoration, it led to their destruction. And this, this is what the enemy wants, right? He wants the shame that should thrust us toward repentance to destroy us so that we live underneath it like a covering that we can't get out of. This is what the enemy wants. But when we confess, we shame the enemy and we receive true freedom and it leads to glory, not just for ourselves, but for our families, for those around us who see what it is that God is doing in our lives. Listen, you don't have to live underneath shame. You don't have to, but it is your choice. And God has given us this choice, right? Sometimes we wish that we didn't have free will in some of these areas, but God has given us this choice. And I want to tell you what it is that he tells us. Okay, so if you're suffering under the weight of shame this morning, there's only three ways that this can go, okay? And this is what I see in scripture. The first way is you can begin to glory in your shame. You can make your shame your identity. And that's what it says in Philippians. It says, for many walk of whom I have often told you and tell you even now with weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame. And we see that, don't we? And it's no different. I mean, I feel, I always feel like, oh my gosh, it's the last days when we people see people glorying in their shame, but really it's not. It's been happening. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Instead of repenting and receiving restoration and freedom from shame, we make it our identity, And not only do we make it our identity, but just like the scripture says, we want others to applaud us for it. This is my shame. Applaud me. This is my shame. Don't say anything against me or else you hate me. This is my shame. Don't you love it? That's a choice that we have. When we are filled with shame, we can choose to make shame our identity. We can run with it and we can say, this is who I am. The second thing is we can try to cover our shame. We can save face before people, okay? Try to not let them see the truth. This is what what Saul said to Samuel. Samuel was like, Saul, God's going to take the kingdom from you. And what did Saul say? Well, please just honor me before the people. Don't tell them the truth. Just honor me before the people. We can try. We can try to cover our shame, right, just like Saul did when the kingdom was stripped from him. Instead of repenting right there before Samuel the prophet and saying, forgive me, I didn't wait on God. I didn't take my responsibility as a leader seriously. I've sinned. Forgive me. He said, Ooh, please honor me before the people. That's a choice that we have. We can try to cover our shame. And the third thing is we can repent and we can let Jesus take the shame because this is the reason that he died. 
This is the reason that he died. He scorned shame so that we could be free of shame. This is who he is. And this is what he wants for every believer. Man of God, have you been living under a weight of shame? Let me tell you what, Jesus Christ can set you free. But it is your choice. Woman of God, are you living underneath shame? Are you living underneath the weight of shame? Jesus Christ, he wants to set you free. That's who he is and that's what he does. Hear me now, I want you to hear, because this is what God said to you and this is, this is where it hit me when I was reading in the scripture. Listen, this is what God is saying to you. He's coming to you in the cool of the day and he's saying to you, where are you? Where are you? Just like when he reached out to, to Adam and Eve, he said, where are you? And he didn't ask that because he didn't know where they were. He asked so that they would evaluate themselves. Where am I? What happened to me? There was a time when God and I were so close like this, when our fellowship and our intimacy was, was second to none. Where are you? That's what God is saying to you today. If you feel covered under a weight of shame, he's saying to you, where are you? Right? That's what the scripture says. Many, many go adrift, right? Like me and Cheryl out in our kayaks. You don't even realize until you're really far from the shore, right? Kind of lulls you to sleep, drifting, drifting. And that's why God says to us, where are you? Evaluate your life. He said it to Adam and Eve, and he's saying it to us today. Don't let shame keep you from me. You feel like if you confess, people will look at you differently or whatever. Listen, to save face before men is nothing. To repent before God is everything. It's everything. I love that. That's one thing DJ always says. I'm like, "Mm, are you lying to me? And he would say, it ain't worth going to hell over. I'm not going to tell a lie, right? There is nothing worth. There is nothing worth letting it separate us from Jesus, that closeness, that fellowship, that intimacy. I want you to just to... uh, if you have your Bibles with me or your phones or whatever, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the prescription for shame. And this is, whew, man, 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite books and so powerful. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. I want you to just underline it or memorize it or like just post it in your mirror or something, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, We do not lose heart, but we renounce the things hidden because of shame. As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we renounce the things hidden because of shame. And that's what repentance is, right? It's not just saying, dude, sorry. (laughs) It's turning away and walking the other way. We renounce. We say, nope. That's not me. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm going to do anymore. I renounce that. I turn away and I walk the other way towards Jesus. I walk away from shame, right? And I walk towards Jesus. And if you are suffering under a weight of shame, God's word will wash and renew your mind. And I want you to memorize this because we have received mercy. We do not lose heart, but we renounce the things that are hidden because of shame. You need to find a brother or sister and you need to confess your sins one to another so that you can be healed so that you can be healed. So sin always leads to shame. That's the first thing. 
And then we see the next thing. This is the pattern of sin. Sin leads to shame, and then shame leads to fear. So when God said to the man, where are you? What did Adam say? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was what? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And that word fear in the Hebrew, um, it has two, two dual meanings, which is such a paradox. It means the emotional and intellectual anticipation of harm. And it also means, hold on, the positive feeling of awe and reverence, right? Two things. That word fear, because I was afraid, means the intellectual anticipation of harm and the positive feeling of awe and reverence, okay? So sin takes the fear of the Lord, which is good, our awe and reverence, and it turns it into anticipation of harm. That's what sin does. When we should be living in fear of the Lord, which is awe and reverence, that's what fear of the Lord means, right? To love what he loves and to hate what he hates, that's the fear of the Lord. We live in awe and reverence of who he is, but sin takes that and twists it. And it makes us only live in anticipation of harm. And that's exactly what pastor said this morning. We live as if God are the IRS, right? Which in America, what could be worse? Okay. They're coming to audit you. That was a joke. If you work for the IRS, they're coming to right? that. He's coming to audit you and to just say, nope, this is wrong. 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 And you fail and you owe me $10,000, right? But that's not who God is, but that's how sin, that's how sin twists it from fear of the Lord to fear of reprisal and failure and punishment. Sin severs our fellowship and our relationship and our closeness with God, and it makes us fearful. And not just fearful of consequences from God, but it makes us fear man. It makes us fear failure. It makes us fear trying. It makes us fear dreaming. It makes us fear all these things that God created us to do, to be courageous, mighty warriors for him, to like, you know, go out and do mighty exploits, and it makes us fearful. Fearful in so many areas of our life. This is what sin will do. When did they begin to hide? They began to hide when they heard the Lord. When they heard that he was coming, they ran to hide. Now, was this the first time that the Lord came? No. I mean, he met with them every day. In the cool of the day, he would come, and he would walk through the garden, and they would speak to one another. Can you imagine that? Oh glorious. It's going to be like that again one day, but he would come and he would speak to them. But this time something was different because sin had twisted it. And now there was fear when the Lord came instead of an anticipation of having time with him, there was fear. And that's what sin does. It causes us to hide from his voice, from his truth, from his calling. It takes our innocence and that childlike freedom and that childlike tenacity and just woo, whatever, right? To just pursue what it is that God is telling us to do. Like when your kid jumps into the deep end, like woo, whatever, and they almost drown, but they don't know, right? I'm scared to jump off the diving board and justice is like, wah, because he has that childlike, you know, courage. And, and when, when it is the Lord, man, gosh, and we can jump out without fear and do what it is that God is telling us to do, how amazing that is. And these days in the church, in the church, if you find someone who's fearless, wow, that's an anomaly, right? That should be the norm, but it's not. It's an anomaly to find someone who lives without fear and without shame. It's like, whoa, this person is so strange, right? But I tell you what, that's how I want to be. And that's what I pray for the rock, that we would be a fellowship of unashamed and fearless people. 
because fear and shame are the result of sin. But when those are nailed to the cross, we can step out in freedom and do what it is that God is calling us to do. We can take a city, right? Right? We can pray and see the dead raised. We can, we can see God here through, through us, not in, these, in this building, but through us, his people, see him do mighty exploits, right? That's what the word says. We are not of those who shrink back. But we are of those who, whatever it says, something and are saved. We like go forward and are saved, right? Whatever that scripture is, that's so good, okay? So the scripture tells us not to fear, to be courageous, okay? Over and over and over, we see God saying to his people, take courage, do not be afraid, be courageous. I am with you, do not fear, do not fear. And this is what the Lord is saying to us today, okay? I was really hoping to use that example. 365 days, the Bible says do not fear, but then I... Snopes it, and apparently that's not true. So I don't know. But the Bible does say do not fear a lot, just so you know. Okay? So here's some scriptures. If you are living under the weight of fear, fear of failure, fear of man, fear of, of God, not in the good way, but fear of reprisal from the Lord. Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, right? That takes no fear to cry out, Abba, Father, to talk to God as if he's your dad. That takes no fear. We're not taken back into slavery again. That's not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to be slaves to fear. And the same thing that it talks about in Hebrews 2. Therefore, since we as children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is what God wants to do with the fear in your life. He wants to take it. He wants to nail it to the cross. And he wants to set you free from the fear of death that you have dealt with all your life. He wants to set you free. He wants to set you free. That's who he is. That's what he does. And finally, 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love. And we know this verse. Come on. There is no fear in love for perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. God wants to set you free from fear. Sin leads to shame, which leads to fear. This is the pattern over and over. But God, through our repentance, wants to set us free. He wants to redeem and restore what has been lost, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, immediately they lost their ability to see themselves as God sees them. Their eyes were opened and they realized, I'm naked and this isn't good, and I'm filled with shame, okay? And they were fearful of the Lord coming. God wants to redeem and restore what is lost, right? He wants to restore our ability to dream, our, our freedom to do big things. He wants to restore our closeness with him and our childlike faith. Are you living in fear today? Are you living in fear of what other people think? Has God called you to step out and do something? Has he given you a dream which you are not fulfilling because of fear? God wants you to be free. He wants me to be free of fear. And this, I want you to listen. This is what I feel like God is saying to you, okay? He's coming to you in the cool of the day, and he's saying, who told you? Who told you? 
Just like he said to Adam, Adam said, I hid because I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? And that word told, it signifies knowing something that you really shouldn't know. Who told you you can't do these things God's called you to do? Who told you? Who told you you're not good enough, not smart enough, you're not brave enough, you're not committed enough? Who told you? It wasn't God, right? It's the sin in our lives that tells us we can't do these things. And it's the accuser of the brethren, the enemy. It's not God. And man, I tell myself that over, this is not God. This fear is not God. It's not God that tells me that I can't do these things, right? And that's what God is saying to you today. Who told you? Who told you? Because it wasn't him, right? And what do we do when people speak to us and it's not from God? You know, stomp it down, step on it, right? Cast it out, say, get behind me or whatever, Satan, you know, right? We don't listen. We don't listen. And it is not God that is telling you that you cannot do these things, I'm going to close this morning with a story from our um, women's retreat. It was so beautiful. We were just having this time of, of prayer together, and Liz was just praying for us about the gifts that God has given us. And I was talking with uh, my most, one of my most precious friends, Connie. I think she's over in the nursery. And uh, Connie has a dream of reaching migrant workers with the love of Jesus Christ, right? Can you imagine if in our migrant camps that we have out by where I live in Elmore and Woodville and all these places, if the fire of God fell and then those migrant workers moved all over the nation, right, up into Michigan, over into Indiana, down into Texas, if they moved with the fire of God, can you imagine how that would impact a people? Come on. And this is Connie's dream, right? This is her dream. And she used to have a job where she would work with migrant workers, but it was, it was through an organization, so she wasn't really able to, to minister to them the way that she wanted. So Liz is going around. She's praying for people, and, and Connie's like, I have a dream, to, you know, I have a dream and, and a gift, and she does, to work with migrant workers. And she's like, I just, you know, I don't, I don't know. I know that I want to do this. I don't know. And it's like, Connie, let's come alongside of you. You got a dream? Who told you you can't do it, right? We don't live in fear, we are not of those who shrink back. So let's come alongside of you, okay? Let's brush up on our Spanish, okay? Let's get together some supplies and let's go and let's minister to the migrant workers and let's see the fire of God fall on them and let's see them spread it across the United States, right? What has God called you to do? What is your gift? And let me ask you, who told you you can't do that? And I want to tell you today, and I, and I believe that I speak for pastor when I say this, your dream that God has given you, your gift that God has called you to use, there is a place for that here. We want to come alongside of you. That's our job as pastors, right? That's what Ephesians 4 says, that we are to equip the body of Christ for doing good works, right? That we, that's how we become mature and complete. What is it that God has called you to do? Has he called you to, to minister in in the nursing homes? Has he called you to, to write poetry? Has he called you to have an open mic night? Has he called you to, to wash people's feet? I don't know. What has he called you to do? Cause we want to come alongside of you and we want to say, yes, this is good. How can we make this happen? Maybe this isn't the time, but next year let's do it. Whatever it is, right. To say, let's do it guys. Let's do it. Let's do it. We have lived in fear and shame too long.
And if you are underneath the blood of Jesus Christ, fear and shame have no place in your life. They have no place in your life and no place in my life. And I tell you what, I, I don't want to live. I don't want to live under fear. And Chris is having a class about strongholds coming up. And she was speaking to me about that. And I'm going to close with this. I already said that. Sorry, but I'm going to close with this for real. Um, that sometimes, uh, we don't even realize that it's fear that's keeping us from things. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a normal thought that we have, like, or I already tried that, or I couldn't do that, or there's no way that that can happen. And we don't even realize because it's a stronghold. It's like a, it's like a fortress of thinking in our mind. We think it's not even possible. Now, I remember when, uh, we were in youth group and we were having like a time of worship or something. And you guys know me. I'm just, my mom calls it a built-in microphone. I'm just loud and I can't like help it. I'm loud on the phone. I'm loud in person. I'm just loud. And I remember we were having this time of singing and it was one of the first times that I was just, I mean, I was just worshiping the, I was worshiping the Lord, like with my whole heart. And so it was loud. And, um, this, I would think I was in seventh grade or something. And this way older teenager, he came over to me and he said to me, you know, you don't always need to be heard because it's not about you. And I was evaluating why I feel so afraid to do certain things like with what God has given me and and whatever and stuff like that. And, and I was just looking at like, why do I feel this way? And I realized that is, that is a stronghold in my mind that from that day, and it's not his fault. He, I probably was loud and annoying. You know what I mean? He didn't mean it, but I allowed that to come into my mind and say, whenever you're trying to do something for God, it doesn't, people don't need to always hear you and it doesn't have to be about you. And whenever you're doing that, you're doing it from wrong motives. And so you need to not do that. Right. And so it became a stronghold in my mind, but God wants to set me free from that. And I, and I'm just telling you today to be held accountable because I refuse to live in fear. And this is what I want for us as the rock to no longer live in fear and to no longer live in shame. Amen. So would you stand with me today? And, uh, and I know that this, this altar call is, is not for everybody, but I just want to play. I want to place a call to you today to you, man of God, who's living underneath shame. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we do, when we repent, shame has no place. When you repent, you shame the enemy and you receive freedom. Listen, man of God, woman of God, are you living underneath shame? God wants to set you free today. You might not even realize, you might not even know the freedom that you could feel when you come to him and you repent. Are you living in fear today? Fear that if you try something, a dream, that niggling little thought of a dream that God's given you, that you'll fail and people will laugh at you? And why would you ever try that? Because you're going to fail. Listen, God wants to set you free from that fear. He wants to set you free from that. And he wants you to run unhindered with the calling that he's given you. That's what he wants for you. And if we, are gonna, if we are going to see in these last days our city be one to Christ, if we are going to see the church, the kingdom, advanced violently and forcefully as God longs for it to be, we have to be 
unafraid, and unashamed. So if that's you today, would you, I'm making a call for you this morning. I'm making a call. Would you come to these altars this morning? And let's come and let's repent and let's receive freedom. Let's come and let's give it all to him, all of our dreams, all of our fears, everything that we're experiencing, and let's receive freedom. And then let's run unhindered, okay? These altars are open. I'm going to pray. If this is for you, you feel freedom to come up this morning. And then also just remember that over here is an area for healing. If you need prayer for healing, and up here we'll just be praying um, against fear and against shame. Father, we thank you for your word this morning because it's a word that's piercing my heart, God. I want to live unashamed and I want to live unafraid. God, I want this to be the fellowship of the unashamed and the unafraid for this is your church and these are your people, God. Lord, I pray that as we confess and repent and walk in obedience, God, that we would see real freedom, freedom from shame and freedom from fear. Lord, do your work this morning. Have your way in this place and in the lives of your people. We thank you and we bless you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. The altar workers at this time, all the altar workers, if you would come up at this time, let's pray. Amen. Altar workers, if you would come up at this time. Amen. Amen. Yes, what a good word, huh? Really good word. Praise God. Praise God. <coughs> now let's respond. Let's respond to that word. Yeah, I don't want to live under a, a bondage of fear anymore. I don't want fear to captivate my life, my dreams, my hope. If that's you, would you come to the altar right now? I don't want shame to just run me to the path of destruction. If that's you you come to the altar right now let's let it go and let let god be god amen come to the altar come to the altar let that shame lead you to christ let christ heal it amen amen the altars are open we're going to be praying there's a group of people here believing for healing if you need prayer for healing come to this side if you're responding to the message come here we'd love to pray with you amen god bless you enjoy enjoy the presence of god enjoy the peace that comes when he forgives. Amen. Bless you. Have a good day. You unravel me with your magic.